As Joe said, my name is Brent Smith. I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Central, and uh, we've certainly, uh, we're certainly glad that you've joined us this morning. Uh, if this is your first time here, I'll just get you up to speed. Normally, when I talk without a mic, my voice is not this vibrating. So hopefully that's fixed. Maybe that's me. Is that me? I don't know. It sounds like I should do a monster truck ad. <clears throat> no, you don't want me to do that. So since January, uh, we've been working our way through Romans. Uh, Romans is a book of the Bible in the New Testament. It's actually a letter uh, by a guy named Paul to a church in Rome. And uh, it's divided up into 16 chapters. And as of last week, we worked our way through eight of them. So we're halfway through. And this morning, we're going to look at Romans 9. And for the first eight chapters, uh, Paul has been marvelously outlining and explaining what he has called the gospel of God. And he's held it up, and we've looked at it from different angles, and we've got a clear picture of what the gospel is. And Tim Keller defines it as the news that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And so that's the gospel that Paul has been showing us. And through the first eight chapters until last week when he ended chapter 8 with the big sweeping conclusion where he pulls everything together and shows us that nothing will separate us from the love of God. So if last week we were soaring on the heights of Romans 8, now we're going deep with Romans 9. You want to put that next slide up, guys? How can free will coexist with divine preordination? Too deep. I like it. There's Foxtrot. If Batman died, would the Joker be happy? <laughs> so Romans 9 is a question provoker. It requires some, some chewing, as it were. Um, because in Romans 9, we run into the theme of God's election, God's divine choosing. And that brings up questions like Marcus has here for Jason and Foxtrot. So, needless to say, we probably won't answer the how of Marcus's question, uh, and the many other questions that Romans 9 provokes, we probably won't answer either, uh, but for my, hope, my hope this morning for us is that we see God more clearly, His ways and what He has done, we see ourselves more clearly, and what our response to Him should be. And the second question, the Joker would have no joy over the death of Batman, his whole life would be ruined. So that question at least is easy to answer. <clears throat> but looking at Romans as a whole, and if you've read through it before, you know uh, that this section that we're now in spans for three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, and they're seen as a section where uh, Paul mentions Israel an awful lot. There's some pretty tricky verses, and generally when you're reading through Romans, you just hang on because you know that 12.1 is coming and you have that memorized. Right? And so uh, N.T. Wright 
if you put the next slide up, he said that Romans 9 to 11 is full of problems as a hedgehog is full of prickles. Many have given it up as a bad job, leaving Romans as a book with eight chapters of gospel at the beginning, four of application at the end, and three of puzzle in the middle. So that's where we land this morning. Uh, so for the next couple of weeks, we're not going to ignore the puzzle in the middle. We're going to see it not as an unfortunate aside by Paul, but rather as essential to his letter and as important for us today. So we're going to jump into this puzzle this morning by looking at Romans 9, and I'll read through it, the whole chapter, and then we'll come back and dig around a bit. Okay, so Romans 9, if you have your Bibles, and it'll be on the screen as well. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah, will have a, Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated." What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out, concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. 
And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. A lot in there, eh? I read one commentary and it said, We are now entering the most difficult chapter in the whole Bible. And I said, Oh, boys. So it is difficult, and we're not going to pretend that it's not, it's not difficult, but as we know, all Scripture is profitable, and so we're going to profit this morning from God's Word. So back to verse 1. <clears throat> back to verse 1, and we'll start to work our way through. It's important to see that in this chapter, and in 10 and 11, Paul is setting out to answer a question that he feels has arisen out of what he has previously said. So we've seen Paul do this before in the letter, answer questions that he knows will arise. And so if we look back at Romans 8:29 and 30, Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those who he called, he justified. And those who he who justified, he glorified. And so we have this line, this chain of people that God calls and he will ultimately glorify and there's this constant unbreakableness that leads Paul to sound off in the last few chapters of 8 that we looked at last week that nothing will then separate us from the love of God. So when we get to 9, then the question that comes up for his readers and Paul knows it is this, is if that is true, if Romans 8 30 is true, that all who God calls, he justifies and glorifies, that everything that God starts, he finishes. If nothing can frustrate the purposes of God, then what about the Jews? Were they not called? And if so, why have so many rejected Jesus? Why do so many not believe? And so the question is kind of, you got a little carried away there at the end of 8, Paul. You got let your emotions get the best of you, and you kind of got exaggerating a bit and you got beyond truth because when we look at the Jews we see they're called by God to be his people and now many have rejected Jesus so surely then God's plans can be frustrated surely then God does not complete everything that he starts and so that's what Paul is setting out to answer in chapters 9 to 11 and so if you are here in Atlantic Canada in 2016, you probably say, what relevance does that have for me? A lot. Because if that is true, if the Jews were called and chosen by God, but then not saved, then all the joy and life and hope of Romans 8 is sucked dry. Because if that is true, then God's word has failed. And if God's word has failed for the Jews, then who's to say that it will not fail for you and me? Who's to say that something won't come along then and separate us from his love? If God's purposes for the Jews have been frustrated, how can I be sure that they won't be frustrated for me as well? So as difficult as it is, Romans 9 really makes or breaks Romans 8. 
And so that's the question that Paul is setting out to answer. And so when we see those first few verses, Paul's personal note at the beginning of the chapter, we see the deep emotion that he has going into this particular topic. He uses very strong language. He wants to show his readers, almost forcefully show them, the sincerity of his heart going into this. And so he says, he says, I'm speaking the truth, and not just telling the truth, but I'm speaking the truth in Christ. It goes from a big statement to a bigger statement. And then he puts the negative spin on it, I'm not lying. He speaks of his conscience bearing witness, and even that has been backed up, sealed in, and certified with the Holy Spirit. He's using very strong language to make sure that his readers know where he stands on this. He speaks of his deep emotional response, that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. And so Paul's a feeler, and right now he's feeling to the max when we come to Romans 9. And why? Why is he so sorrowful about this? It's because he looks out at the Jewish nation, he sees all the privileges that God has given them. On top of it all, Jesus himself was a Jew in the flesh, and in spite of all of this, even though all these things were meant to lead them and point them to Jesus, they have rejected Jesus. They have rejected God's plan of salvation. So his sorrow and anguish of heart is very simple. When he looks out at his fellow countrymen, they are lost. They are lost. By refusing to accept Jesus as the Messiah, they've cut themselves off from God's promise of salvation. And in seeing their state, Paul's great love for them overflows. And he basically says, if you, if you caught it there, he says, if it were possible, I would even ask God to send me to hell so that they could be saved. That's a staggering statement. He desperately wants his family, his friends, his nation to turn to Christ. He knows what it is to be in a relationship with God and he wants others to experience it as well. One commentator said, we see here Paul catching a spark from the fire of Christ's sacrificial love for us. It shows us that as logical and as intellectual as Paul was, he is not some stuffy, cold theologian standing back observing. He is a passionate, warm apostle right in the mix of all that God is doing. He has deep anguish when he sees the lost. And so when we read something like that, we should ask ourselves, do we know something of this pain that Paul felt? When we look out at our friends and our family and our co-workers and our city and our nation, do we know something of the love that Paul shows us here? When we see people rejecting Christ, does it, does it pain us? Do we have that deep desire to see them come and experience the joy and the purpose that we have found in Jesus? If we don't, then our prayer needs to be, God, grow my love. Grow my love. Not just for fellow Christians. Grow my love for the lost. Break through the indifference and the apathy 
I want to have a heart like I see here at the beginning of Romans 9 for those who don't know Jesus. In verse 6, Paul begins to answer the question that is raised that if God does start or does God does finish everything he starts, then why do so many Jews reject him? And in verse 6, he says he starts to bring the solution to the problem of Israel not believing, and he says that the word of God does not fail. It is not, it is not as though the word of God has failed. The word of God does not, cannot, has not, will not ever fail. Jeremiah 1.12, he's watching over his word to perform it. Heaven and earth will pass away. God's word will not. And this really is the main theme through the next three chapters. That although sometimes it looks like things are contradicting God's purposes, they are not. That everything can look like it's all going sideways, but God's purposes always stand. His plans never fail. So if God's word doesn't fail, then what in the world is going on? And Paul tells us that not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. In other words, we need a better, proper definition of who Israel is. Some who are physically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not true Israel. And those who are not physically descended from them are. And Paul has already alluded to this in Romans 2. We kind of went quickly through Romans 2. He says that uh, a Jew is not just one outwardly, a Jew is one inwardly. And so he's building off of that. Not all who are Israel are actually Israel. So to prove his point, Paul brings up two Old Testament examples. First, he mentions the story of Isaac and Ishmael. And a lot of us know the story there. Abraham was promised by God that his descendants would be blessed. Both Ishmael and Isaac were Abraham's descendants. But God tells Abraham that it is only Isaac who will be accepted. Only Isaac will be a child of the promise and inherit God's blessing. But we could easily say, well, that whole thing was pretty sketchy, right? With Hagar and disobedience and Abraham going his own way. And Abraham was pretty shifty. So God choosing Isaac over Ishmael as the child of the promise doesn't really prove anything. So Paul goes deeper in through the story of Jacob and Esau. And he says, Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might, be, might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, the older being Esau, the younger being Jacob. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Paul turns our attention to the sons of Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau. They had the same parents. They were twins even. But, Jacob, but God chooses Jacob, the younger son, over his brother Esau. So it's here where we come face to face with some of those prickles on the hedgehog. Uh, because now Paul is dealing with the ever difficult question of why some people are descendants of Abraham and love God and others are not. 
and in doing so he's dealing with the other big wider question of why some people love God and others do not. And that's a difficult, difficult question. So let's just look at what he says. He says, first, that God's choice was made before the twins were even born, before either ever took a breath. God chose Jacob. Second, he says that it was before either of them had done anything, any good thing or any evil thing. And then he reinforces it by saying, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So Jacob was not superior to Esau in any way. He didn't do more good deeds. He didn't have a greater trust in God. He wasn't more of a physical descendant than his brother. The only reason Jacob received the promise is because of God's purpose of election. He chose him. Then he finishes the statement by paraphrasing a verse from Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now it's important to note that similar to Luke 14, 26, when Jesus says that to be his disciples we must hate our family, we know from the scope of Scripture that, that Jesus is not actually telling us to hate our family in the literal, absolute sense of the word. Uh, we're called to love our family, even though that can be the hardest sometimes of people to love. Uh, but, but what is indicated is a relative term. It means to prefer Jesus over others. And the same here in Romans 9, Jacob was preferred over Esau. So the reason that all of Israel is not Israel, Paul is telling us, is because God has chosen some to be the true Israel, children of the promise, and that means that if you're a Christian this morning, you're a Christian not because of anything that you've done, but because God called you. Revelation 13 says that Jesus has a book, the Lamb's Book of Life, and he wrote in it before the foundation of the world. That if you're a Christian this morning, that your name was written in that book before the foundation of the world. That before God spoke anything into existence, he had a book. When he opened it, your name was there. not because of works, but because of him who calls. So this reason that Paul gives has given people difficulties for centuries, and I'm not going to stand up here and say that it doesn't leave me with questions and difficulties either. God's call of election and God desiring that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance is one of those difficulties that we read in the Bible. We see here in Romans 9, it says, not all of Israel are Israel, that before they were born, God chose. And we also read, God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There are difficulties that we need to wrestle with. So maybe this is the first time you've ever heard Romans 9 or heard anything about uh, election. Maybe it's the first time you've ever thought about why some are saved and others not. And maybe there's a thousand questions running through your head. Thankfully, in verse 14, Paul moves to answer two of those questions. Before we look at them, I just wanted to say that I know that some of you might object to uh, election as the way that I have explained it. And maybe you read Romans 9 in a different way. And I just want to say three things. First, I think it's clear there's no need for division. Questions back and forth can be helpful through, through the history of the church. People have looked at that in different ways. 
questions back and forth can be helpful. Quarreling is not overly helpful. Second, wherever you land, make sure you land there because you spent some significant time studying God's Word and not just because you don't like it. So there's a difference between saying, I've studied God's Word, I've looked at it for a while, and I feel that this view of God that you've talked about is incompatible with the rest that I've read is very different from saying, I don't like that. That doesn't line up with the view of God that I've formed in my head that's not founded in God's Word. And third, however you interpret Romans 6 to 13, it should still cause the questions of Romans 9.14 and 9.19 that we'll look at in a minute to rise up. So I've heard different views about it's, oh, it's just this and it's just that, but the questions still need to arise that we're going to look at in a minute because if they don't arise from how you've interpreted 6 to 13, then why in the world does Paul address those questions in 14 and 19? Does that make sense? All right. So I just wanted to say those few things before we move on. It's difficult. You're doing well. We'll keep going. Paul's going to answer a couple of your questions. So Paul's first question that he addresses in 14 is so helpful, and I love it when Paul does this, is because he addresses the very thing that we're thinking. So upon hearing about God's election, we say to choose some and not all isn't God being unfair, right? Paul's reply is, by no means, exclamation point, not even close. And Paul reminds us of God's interaction with Moses on Mount Sinai, where Moses begs God to be with his people. If your presence doesn't go with us, it's not worth going. And then he asks God, show me your glory. And God says, all right, I'll show you my glory. And he says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So God says, you want to know me, what makes me God, my glory, the very core of my character, it is this, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And Tim Keller says, at first, these, sounds all, these sound almost like the words of an arbitrary bully until we reflect. Mercy, by its very definition, cannot ever be an obligation. To say mercy is unfair is to say that it is owed to all, but a mercy is undeserved and thus totally free. Louis Burkhoff writes, If God owed the forgiveness of sin and eternal life to all men, it would be an injustice if he saved only a limited number of them. But the sinner has absolutely no right or claim on the blessings which flow from divine election. As a matter of fact, he has forfeited those blessings. Not only have we no right to call God to account for electing some and passing others by, but we must admit that he would have been perfectly just if he had not saved any. So when we cry, not fair to God's salvation, it shows that there's still roots of pride in our hearts, our picture of mercy is distorted, and that somehow God owes us our salvation. 
he will have mercy on whom he has mercy. The second question Paul addresses is in verse 19. If that is the case, then how can God find fault in people for who can resist his will? A question that's often phrased today as, then we're all just robots. Paul didn't have robots in his day, so he didn't phrase the question that way. Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And the answer that Paul gives us is a question back at us. Who are we? Who are we to answer back to God? Who are we to stand over God and pass judgment on what he does based on our expectation of what we would do? We are the clay. He is the potter, not us. And so I think we... A lot of the difficulties and a lot of the uh, emotional responses that we have to Romans 9 and we kind of cringe and something rises up in us when we read Romans 9. I think a lot of it, just looking at my own heart this week, is that we come face to face with our createdness. We come face to face with our createdness and we don't like it. We spend most of our life pretending and acting like we're gods in control of our universes And then Romans 9 comes and says, God is God, and you are not. And if you want to judge God and his actions, go ahead. But you should probably wait until your knowledge matches up with his. You should probably wait till your wisdom rivals his wisdom. You should probably wait till your love is as pure and as steadfast as his love. You should probably wait till your holiness rivals his sinless perfection. We are the clay, and he is the potter. This answer alone is sufficient, but added to it in verses 22 and 23, Paul presents two people, vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. And the interesting thing about the statement is that the vessels of mercy are prepared for glory very clearly by God, while the vessels of wrath are prepared for destruction but noticeably, Paul makes no, mem- no mention of who's preparing them. And so the implication being they are preparing themselves. And then in the final verses, Paul hangs the Jews' unbelief on themselves. They are responsible. They stumbled over Jesus. So Paul's answer to the question, how can God find fault for who can resist his will, is to show us that God is God, our creator, sovereign over all that he has made, and we are able and expected to make real, meaningful choices and be held accountable for those choices. Our salvation is God's. Our unbelief is ours. Writing on these verses, John Stott says, If anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. This antinomy, this apparent contradiction, contains a mystery which our present knowledge cannot solve, but it is consistent with scripture, history, and experience. So it's difficult, but the Bible presents both of those things. God is sovereign. We're responsible for our decisions. So it's a bit like this. And much like illustrations about the Trinity are just dumb, mostly. You can throw this aside as a dumb illustration. But it might be helpful. So suppose... The elders are all on the corner of, uh, what is it, uh, 
Queen and Westmoreland, okay? They're right there, right outside the police station. Rick's on break, so he doesn't see what's going on. So I come up on the conversation, and I quickly realize they are planning to run across the road and rob the TD Bank. All right? So I don't have much time. They're just finalizing their plans. They've been talking about it for weeks. They take off across the road. As they run, I jump and I grab Ollie and I tackle him and I restrain him because I can, because it's a story. <laughs> the others go. They go in the bank. It's chaos. Rick does show up. He arrests all of them. They are tried, they are convicted, they are sentenced, and they are put in jail. Okay? Ollie, not being involved in the situation, is a free man. Can Ollie then say, it was my goodness of why I'm a free man. I am so much of a better man than the other elders, and that's why I enjoy this freedom that I have. On the other side, can the other elders claim the fault was anyone's but their own of why they are sitting in jail? They cannot. The fault was their own. And the only reason Ollie is not with them is because I restrained him. So part of the great mystery that Fox, Foxtrot presented to us at the first is that we don't really know how these things exist together, but they do, do exist. And the Bible teaches that far from being some robot, robots programmed by God without any real choice, we are free to make meaningful, real decisions and be absolutely responsible for those decisions. But the Bible also teaches that God rules and reigns in absolute sovereignty over all that he has made, and we are not saved by our deciding, but by his electing. Randy Alcorn in his book, Hand in Hand, The Beauty of God's Sovereignty and Meaningful Human Choice, says this, The God of the Scriptures is so big, wise, and powerful that he can grant truly meaningful and real choices to angels and humans alike in a way that allows them to act freely within their finite limits without inhibiting his sovereign plan in any way, and indeed using their meaningful choices, even their disobedience, in a significant way to fulfill his sovereign plan. So we've seen Paul's heart and his love for the lost. We've seen God's purpose in his calling of election. Paul has helped to answer some of the major questions that this doctrine has raised. We probably have a few more but as with our own children, sometimes the reasons and the purposes for those things stay with the parents and aren't for the children. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes why we do things and the purposes behind them and our decisions that we make stay with Karen and I, and we have no obligation to explain those fine details to our children. So what is our response then? So some people hear these things we looked at in Romans 9. They say, if God's sovereign and he'll save whom he will save, then why bother with anything? I'm going to just stay home and do nothing. 
because God's going to save who he's going to save. Surely that is not the appropriate response. What kind of response is appropriate then? What is our call in light of God's calling? So remember what Paul set out to accomplish, to throw aside any doubt that God's word has or will ever fail. It will not. So as Christians, we can have that assurance, that confidence that God will accomplish every single purpose of his, that everything that God begins, he finishes, period. Nothing and no one will frustrate the plans of God. This is a bigger theme than just uh, what Foxtrot is talking about. This is, does God's word fail in any circumstance? And the answer is no, it does not fail. God's word does not fail. This then invades every area of our Christian life. Instead of grumbling and judging and grinding against our creator, we bend the knee and submit as creation. His ways are greater than our ways. It removes every ounce of pride in my salvation. In no way, shape, or form did God see any superior goodness or love in me that caused him to move towards me to save me. He moved towards me to save me because he loves me. And that humility then overflows in greater worship. My salvation is not my doing, but solely the work of God, and I rejoice that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. It moves us to pray and to witness and to tell others the good news of Jesus. Some people think if God is sovereign, why pray? Why pray if he's not? When we gather on Sunday nights, we can pray that God move mightily through our city, bring many people to himself. We pray uh, for people in other countries that God would save leaders and turn governments towards him in countries that are hostile to him. We pray for our city, that God would move mightily. We'd see many people come to know him. We look at our family members and our friends who seem far away from him and in hopeless situations, and we pray for their salvation because we know that it isn't dependent on someone logically arguing the gospel or their emotions being tugged with a passionate plea, but on God who can at any time with anyone break in and save. That's why we pray. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said that he never despaired of salvation for any man since God saved him. Don't despair. Our God saves. So when I read Romans 9, does it spark questions and difficulties? It sure does. But when I read it, my prayer is that as a church, we would see Paul's heart for the lost. That would mark our church, to have that anguish to see people come to know Jesus and to have a high view of the sovereignty of God in salvation, that it removes any despair or hopelessness, that no one is so far gone they are beyond the reach of God's arm and he can at any time break in and save and those two things, coupled together, would propel us forward to pray and to plead and to run alphas and to do conferences and to share our stories on the bus 
and to uh, share the gospel in whatever way we can and to pray and, and to have that deep anguish in our heart for the lost so that we could see the kingdom of God come so that those people would put their faith in Jesus. They wouldn't stumble over the stumbling stone. They put their hope in him. That's my prayer when I read Romans 9. Give us that deep anguish. If our hearts are cold and we don't have that love that we see in Paul, we need to pray, God, grow our love for the lost. If we're hopeless when we see situations, we need to pray, God, raise my view of your power and salvation that you can break in at any time and save, that it is not by will or exertion, but it is on you who saves. That's my prayer for us as a church. We can wrestle with the questions. We can wrestle with the difficulties. How does that line up with this? And if that means that, then what does that mean over here? We can wrestle with all those things. That's good. But let's have that drive to see God's kingdom come and to see many, many people know him and love him. Amen? Amen. Good. Let's, uh, I'll just turn it over to Joe. I'll pray. Turn it over to Joe. Father, we just submit this morning that you are creator. And we pray that any pride in us uh, would be replaced by humility as we see that you are the potter and we are the clay. And so we want to come before you. We know that you're not a God that just um, is at our beck and call and you just come when we ring the bell and We try to domesticate you and bring you down, but we see in Romans 9 that you are a great and glorious God. You are Lord Almighty. You are creator of the universe, and we are your creation. So we come humbly before you, and we pray this morning that as we look at Romans 9, if we're confused this morning, we pray that you would help us uh, bring clarity um, to your word. We know that your word is profitable. We know that your word is consistent. And so we pray, Father, that you would help clear up some of our questions that we might have. We pray, Father, that we would not have a low view of your word. We would not have a low view of you, uh, but we would come seeing you as high and lifted up and that your word does not fail. And we pray as we look at our own hearts and we see Paul's heart for the lost, we do pray, God, grow our love. We pray, Father, for that burning in our heart to see our friends, our family members, our co-workers, our children, our sons and daughters, our parents, all these people you've put in our lives. We pray, Father, that you put that burden on our heart because we know that Paul's going to tell us in Romans 10 that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we pray we'd have a high view of you, that you can break in, that you are mighty to save, and that you, that would remove any despair or hopelessness in any situation that we see. And you move us forward, Father, to see your kingdom come in our lives, in our families, in our cities, in this nation, for your glory. Amen. Amen. Excellent.